Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. The reason it enables us to see in a fresh way, one, the ultimate basis for the family, and two, God's purposes for the family. First, the doctrine of the Trinity takes the origin of the family out of the domain of the social scientists and the biologists. We do not have to look either to the natural or the social sciences to understand the mystery of this social institution. When we understand something of the mystery of the Trinity, we find that the basis for the family rests not in the creation nor in us, but it rests in the very nature of the absolute itself in the very being of God himself. The reality that we call fatherhood has its origin before the beginning of time itself, because the first father was not Adam. It was rather the first person of the blessed Trinity. Long before if you will let me use time language to speak of the eternal. Long before God was ever called God, Lord, Sovereign, or any other appellative that speaks of his attributes, the eternal Son was in conversation with his Father. This means that the first word that has to be said about God is not a word of sovereign power or dominion, but one that comes from the family. Not a word from the court, but one from the heart. Paul even suggests that the final word will also not be one of sovereignty, nor even from the language of the court. Hear him speak in 1 Corinthians 15 where he is portraying the scene where the last enemy, death itself, has been destroyed and every knee has been bent in acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord and all things are finally under his nail-scarred feet. Hear Paul's words as he describes for us the end of the human story in this world. Quote, then cometh the end, when he, Christ, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. The fact of fatherhood is an eternal one. Before time began, as we said, the picture was familial, and the scriptures show that in the end that will characterize the end as well. Do not worry. 
No matter what you hear on the evening news, in the other media, in the scholarly journals, the final word on human existence will be a familial one. The real key to the understanding of this institution is not to be found in our sciences, it is found only in Christian dogma. The fact that persons come in families is clearly an aspect of what it means for us to be made in the image of God. It should not be lost on us that every person that we have ever met or will ever meet has parents. When you see one, you know there are two more somewhere. And if you find the two, you know there are four more behind them. No matter what the scientists think up next, that fact in one way or another will undoubtedly continue to characterize human life that all persons have parents. Further, the most natural first word for any child will continue to be the one for either its mother or its father. The first of all personal relationships should be with parents. There are physicalities in this scene that have social import, but there are also sacred aspects. To miss the sanctities here can turn any society into a Sodom or a Gomorrah, and in our own culture, unfortunately, we seem to be watching just that. To return, though, to those signs of hope, the world that we can see is indelibly marked by the family. And from God's perspective, I think for the most benevolent of all purposes, how better could our Father, whom we cannot see, help us to understand that the doorway into the world beyond our senses, that other world with which we all must ultimately deal, that that door actually opens to us with the simple words, Our Father, who art in heaven, do not worry about the family going away. It has roots that our culture cannot see, and that the social scientists have no instruments to measure. It has roots that reach beyond time into the ultimate nature of the eternal reality that we call God. If the basis for the family is in the very being of the deity itself, what were God's purposes for putting us in family? A first thought for the average person will probably be that the family was his chosen vehicle for the propagation, the perpetuation of the race, or should we say, the human family. To say that God could not have found another way to do that is well beyond my ken. But for me, I'm grateful that he chose to do it in this particular way. 
five children, as you heard, 16 grandchildren, seven great-grandchildren, and a spouse of 50 years, 58 years, makes me like the plan he chose. As the years have passed, <laughs> as the years have passed, as I've observed society and family relationships, and as I have tried to live with and understand the biblical text, some convictions about God and the family have deepened with me. As for God himself, the family has convinced me that, if you will permit me to say it, that God is actually the prototype of all good third-grade school teachers. He is the originator and the master of that choice pedagogical device so popular with third-grade school teachers that we call the object lesson. God teaches by sign. That least is very clearly the way his son did it, as you will recall. And the family is the primary, most foundational, and most important of those signs. Before the child has ever gone to school, as we know school, the little one has already found himself or herself in that school of all schools, the one that is most basic and most crucial for the learning of those lessons that determine the difference between life that is good and life that is not. Lest you conclude that I am thinking here primarily of the moral teaching in the family, of ethical instruction, that instruction that should determine our views of right and wrong and our conduct, let me quickly say that I want to go much deeper than that. The really profound questions of an intellectual nature, contrary to what we commonly think, do not wait for college or for graduate school. They are unwittingly present and raised and often answered in the depths of one's own individual psyche long before he gets or she gets to university or graduate school. They are unwittingly raised and answered in the depths of a person's psyche there. In fact, I expect that the answer to the real question as to whether one is to be an idolater a worshiper of a God of his own or another's conception, or whether one is able to think the true nature of God himself and worship the one who is the great I am, may be determined for most folks long before they ever leave the environs of the home. 
Take, for instance, the relationship between justice and mercy. If one cannot rightly relate these two concepts, one will necessarily be a worshiper of a false god no matter what he or she may call him. Are these antithetical concepts, or are they actually different expressions of the same single reality that profound concern for another's well-being that the scriptures identify as holy love. In school, these questions can only be discussed in abstraction. In the family, they can be existentially displayed in incarnate life. What will one do to explain Good Friday and the crucifixion if a person cannot conceive of one who is both merciful and at the same time just, whose mercy and justice proceed from a same single source, God's own holy nature of love? Only if one can think such thoughts can one ever understand the affirmation of the psalmist, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. My question is whether such thoughts will even be thinkable for the person who has never seen such in human flesh. My conclusion is that God actually gave us the family so that it is possible to thank him. Thank him? Yes. But T-H-I-N-K, him too. So that all who have a father with a little F can have some basis for being able to think the father with a capital F. And if one cannot think God, then one is destined to live in delusion with all of its inevitable nugatory consequences, because being able to think God is the key to understanding the nature of reality, our own, the ultimate, and all else. William Temple understood this. You will remember his insistence that if one's concept of God is wrong, the more religion one gets, the more dangerous one is to himself and to others. Our current daily newscasts should remove any question in our minds about the accuracy of Temple's conclusion. It is my conviction that the family is the key to getting at the right concept of God. If the family is wrong, the possibility of thinking the true God is a problem. But if the family is right, the child, blessed by being brought up in it, is in a far stronger position to be able to grasp and make his or her own the deeper truths of the Christian faith. 
Would you let me personalize this just a bit? Let me share with you a couple of stories that have helped determine my own intellectual journey. It was my lot to grow up during Depression days. My father, a lawyer, raised most of our food in his garden and insisted that I help him. Money was exceedingly scarce. I could not join the Boy Scouts because the dues were a nickel a week and a uniform cost all of nine dollars. But one winter evening, my father, after supper, as our family sat around the stove to keep warm, took from his pocket six silver dollars in mint condition. I looked at those glossy, shiny, big cartwheels, for that is what we called them in those days, and I found myself experiencing something for which I had no word in my child's vocabulary. I found a surge of soul-encompassing avarice flooding over me. When I asked him if I could hold one, he immediately placed one in my hand. I stared at it in delight. Then I looked up at him and closed my hand over it. Then I, still watching his face, put my hand behind my back and took a step backward. My intent was rather obvious. He then put his empty hand forward and insisted that I return it. I shook my head negatively and took another step backward. I then received my first lecture on property rights. And when he got through, I was delighted to return the coin to its owner. It was too hot for me to handle. The second story took place a decade or more later. I was in my senior year of undergraduate studies and was home for Christmas break. It was New Year's Eve, and I was scheduled to leave the next day to go back to college. My father sat down with me and gave me a check for $500. Then he asked, will this be enough to get you through your final two quarters to your A.B. degree so that you can graduate this coming June? I assured him it would be sufficient. The next day, I returned from my last stint in college. It was six weeks later, February the 10th, that I received the only telephone call that came to me in four years of college. You see, I come from another age and another world. It was my mother on the telephone. I was shocked to hear her say, Honey, Dad's gone. I immediately asked how it happened. She said that she was wakened during the night. Dad was getting up. 
He often had trouble sleeping solidly through a night. His mind was far too agile to permit him simply to lie in bed awake for too long, so he would get up and read for a while. Usually, it was the Bible that he read. She waked up again, and Dad was back in bed, and he was quoting to himself scripture verses that he was memorizing. Later she was wakened, he had called her, and when she touched him, he was gone. It was years before I ever dared share with anyone the first thought that ran through my head. I felt for ages that it would be far too self-serving sound too self-centered to ever share with anyone what I thought. But the predominant thought that for years so embarrassed me was this. Well, he has finished his work. Somehow, he had brought me to believe that his prime purpose in life was to get me and my siblings educated. Now, graduation for me was in view. I was one of five children. Between 1929 and 1939, he financed 21 years of college for the five of us. And those, as I said, were depression days. I never knew my father ever to borrow money until my junior year in college. It was against his principle, but he borrowed money then to keep me in school. I knew that he placed a very high value on education and that he wanted the best for his own. In my mind, he lived to care for my needs. He lived, I thought, for me. Suddenly, that story of the silver dollar came to mind. Why would he refuse to give me one of his six shiny silver pieces? He was saving it and the cost of membership in the Boy Scouts for my siblings and for me so that we could be educated and fulfill the vocations for which God had placed us here. Now, what I'm going to say might seem a long stretch for a secularly-minded person, but it is not for me. As I said, I grew up in Depression Day, but I also grew up in the heyday of the old modernism. When I was 16, as a Methodist in the South, in the Bible Belt, in my church, I never expected to meet an educated person other than my own father, who actually believed in the physical resurrection of Christ. Science, we were told, had made thoughts of such miracles unthinkable. One of the two sermons preached for my ordinations to deacons and elders' orders 
was a thoroughly Unitarian sermon on Jesus, the good man. Those were the days when we were told that the God of Moses in the Old Testament was a bully God, and that one of Jesus' prime purposes for coming was to deliver us from the primitive and unworthy understanding of God reflected in Israel's ancient literature. In fact, we were taught that Jesus had come to explain to us that God is quite nice and that we can call him Father because he loves us just as our earthly parents loved us. It was legitimate, therefore, to use the tender human title that we applied to our Father, to God himself. But Sinai and the Gospels, we were told, contain two very different pictures of God. But fortunately, Jesus had come and brought us the nicer one that we could trust. For a long time, I could not understand why that perspective never made sense to me. I found myself, as I read Moses, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, discovering aspects of grace and love in those Old Testament narratives that moved me profoundly as I reflected on the amazing patience of God with a disobedient people. I seemed to find in the text insight that others did not seem to see. As I got older and finally admitted to myself my first thoughts, on the death of my father, I finally decided I understood. Deep within my spirit, I knew that justice and love were not antinomies because I had seen them both incarnate in the same person. If they could be one in my own father, I knew that they could be and were one in the Father of all fathers. Do not tell me that the education around that stove in the family room of my childhood has not been of infinite value to me when coming to deal with questions of anthropology, Christology, soteriology, or just the nature of God. My question is, will you think it? If you've never seen it, as I think back across my life, I am astounded at the opportunity, unexpectedly, and that unworthily came to me. God has given me some rare academic opportunities in my lifetime. He must have felt my need 
was incredibly great. It was my privilege to read Pascal with Emil Cahiers and the New Testament with Otto Pieper and John Calvin with George Barois at Princeton, Plato with Robert Cushman at Duke. It was my privilege to be challenged by James Stewart at Edinburgh and enabled in an unbelievable way by the remarkable genius of Cyrus Gordon at Brandeis. But the keys to the profoundest thought that ever crossed my mind unwittingly were made possible by the learning that unconsciously took place in my home. Because of that, if I were to list my greatest teachers, I would have to include Wade and Sally Bernie Kinlaw. They ran a school where you could not only think great thoughts, but you could also see them incarnate in human flesh. Is that why the historic understanding of the public school systems in the West has been that the schools stand in loco parentis? Our time is such that we cannot do something that I would love to do. You see, the thoughts that we think, because we have the scripture, are thoughts that do not come naturally to man. It could be that the greatest story intellectually in the history of the Christian faith is the story of the development of vocabulary to explain what God has revealed to us. Because the very terminology that we have is the language of a fallen and a natural world. And we have no words that inherently are adequate to express the truths that come to us by sacred revelation. Are you aware that the first person in the Bible who is called holy, a Kudeshah, is a prostitute? Because, you see, the prostitutes were found in the pagan temple. So when God wanted to speak to Moses and tell him that he was holy, the only language that he had was the language of Moses. And so he said, take your shoes off, because the ground that you're standing on is Kadeshah. Kadesh, the masculine, Kadeshah, the feminine. And a Kadesh was a homosexual priest. And a Kadeshah was a normal prostitute. But there was no other language. God not only has to convert people, he has to convert language. Do you know that story is the same when it comes to human love? And divine love, we use one word. But the two are exactly opposite. You see, when I was 
18, I fell in love. We were in the same classes together. I heard her give her witness for Christ. I was enamored. So the next morning, I posted myself next to the mailboxes and waited for her after chapel to come get her mail. She came walking toward me, and I looked as if I were part of the furniture. She turned, paid no attention to me, walked this way, and then turned to her mailbox, bent over, opened the mailbox, took her mail, and walked on down the car. Went around the corner. I can tell you what she was wearing. And I've been chasing her ever since. And in due time, I looked at her and said, I love you. Will you marry me? Now, you know what I really meant was, you know, when you're with me, I'm happy. And in fact, the closer I get to you and the closer I can get you to me, the happier I am. What if I could have you all the time? Would you marry me? You see, I love you. But what I meant was, I like to be happy. Now, I didn't know how intelligent I was. Because sometime later, I led Plato's Symposium. And when I read Plato's Symposium, I read Socrates' discussion of what love is. He said, ah, you love something because it meets a need within your life. You love something because it makes you happy. And, of course, that means that the great gods could never love because they have no need. And so love, as a Greek term, was not applicable to the divine being. And then John says, but our God is love. Not only does he love us enough that he gave his only son, not only is love something he does, that's who he is. Now, is that something, what is being spoken about as ego-centered, as my love for Elsie? You see, the love of God does not love an object because of the value of the object, the nature of the object. God loves because of his own nature. And so when he's stretched out on that cross and they put a spike through one hand and every cell in his body is screaming in pain, and he notices the soldier reach to get another spike? What's his relationship to the man who crucifies him? He loves him. Why? Because he himself is love. Now, where are you going to find a word adequate to describe that? And so Paul and the New Testament writers, and Paul seems to have been the first, scoured the Greek language and found the word It was almost unknown in classical Greek. 
the verb agapao, the noun agape. And they took that word and they poured into it a concept that was alien to natural human thought. Now, uh, if that's who God is, other-oriented love, where are you ever going to get to see it? You know the best place? You've anticipated it. <laughs> I was sitting in my desk. I think it was 1991. I was going through my mail. I uh, found in the mail a letter from a man who was the president of a university. He was a friend of mine. I knew him. And he had written a letter to be sent to a group of his personal friends. He said, A few days ago, my doctor informed me that my wife has Alzheimer's disease and it is a very rapidly developing case. It may be that it will only be a matter of a few days, at most a few weeks, and she will not even recognize who you are. So with this letter, I just wanted to inform you that today I am resigning as the president of my university. My wife of 42 years has kept her part of a covenant. The time has come for me to stand up and do my part. I will devote the rest of her days my time to taking care of my wife. And I thought, you know, I think I understand why God developed the concept of the family. Because in the inner life of the triune Godhead, in the relationship between the Father and the Son, it was that relationship with the Spirit that enabled God to experience his own nature, other-oriented love. Now, there are many aspects of the good news that bring comfort to it. For me, as you perceive, one of the most understanding, one of the most encouraging is its word about the family. The Census Bureau may not be able to define it. Our own government may be committed to trying to change its essential nature. But I have some good news. And it comes from the high authority. The family, as God designed it, is not going to go away. It is the Creator's best instrument to let us know who He is and what He is like. 
In fact, it is his divine gift to help us if we will use it for its original purpose to enable us, one, to think him, and two, to know him personally. For before church or state, our Father established the family as his preferred doorway into his presence. Yes, the family is here to stay. All praise to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit for his wisdom, his mercy, and his love. It makes me want to pray a fervent Amen. <laughs>